Howdy folks, today we're talking about 10 ways to up your photo game. Welcome to Camera Shake, where we bring you the insider scoop on all things photography and videography, giving you a unique opportunity to stay ahead of the curve. We've spent literally hundreds of hours interviewing some of the most renowned photographers of our time, giving you access to knowledge and expertise that's not available anywhere else. As always, I'm your host, Kirsten Lutz, and if you enjoy this content, consider lending your support on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us create more exciting episodes for you. I'll put the link down there somewhere for you. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, that is. Um, if you're listening to the audio version, just remember this, buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake. Uh, your support really does make a difference. But without further ado, let's give it up for today's special guest, the concert photographer, photography judge, and host of the insanely successful photography podcast, Behind the Shot. Give it up for none other than Steve Brazel himself. Steve, how's it going, man? I'm doing well. How are you, my friend? I am awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah, we should we good. should do you a we should do you a commercial. Buymeacoffee.com slash camera shake. Go now. Exactly. That's it. Go now. <laughs> Donate now. Help us make more insanely awesome um episodes of this show. Because it does, you know, it does it, really it, help. it's funny because I try and like I say this on social media periodically, but really honestly, whether it be camera shake podcast or you know, buying a print from somebody. If you've got a creator whose work you appreciate, support them. That matters so much. And it can be a little support. It could be sharing their post that announces a new episode, or it can be donating through Buy Me a Coffee or buying their print. That little thing is what keeps creators going. So if you find a creator you like, go support them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it's it's one of these things, you know, as a as a podcast, like we I say we, I, I don't really sell anything, you know, obviously, you know, I create this content, you know, every week and uh, I don't sell anything. I don't sell t-shirts, which maybe I should, I don't know, but, um, you know, and I don't sell prints or anything like that. So buymeacoffee.com is a really great opportunity to, uh, to just, to just give a little bit back. You know, if, if you like the camera shake podcast, if you like to listen to, uh, to, you know, episodes in the car or you like watching it on YouTube, even then, you know, um, it's a great opportunity to support. Uh, you can, what I like about buymeacoffee.com, um, as opposed to other, um, similar type of, you know, forms of, of support is that you can really choose how much you want to donate. You know, it can be as little as five bucks, you know, which is practically as much as you would pay for a coffee. Um, or you could buy several coffees completely up to you, but every, every penny, um, that, uh, that, that gets donated, you know, to help the show is, is really put straight back into the show. And it just means, you know. Because people don't often don't really realize that there are costs involved in you know making things like this, like you know subscriptions, hosting fees, you know all of that kind of stuff. Like people don't really, you know, people think, oh, you put it on YouTube, that's free to put it on YouTube. A, like in my case, I have a podcast host as well that costs me X number of dollars a month, and I do video in the podcast feed for mine. So I've got both video and audio storage requirements that I pay for. I've got yeah. the software you're using, Ecamm Live, that costs X number of dollars a month to get, you know, the features that you want. The hardware, yeah. the cameras, the lights, the microphones. And more importantly, I would argue, is the time. 
right? I mean, we were talking, you know, before you started recording about how much time we put into after we're done recording, editing the audio, processing the audio, editing and cutting up the video, exporting the video. It's all, you know, time. So again, if you find us a, a, a creator that you like, go support them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, there's there's many uh, great ways that you can that you can do that on on a lot of channels on YouTube, for example. You know, if you because on YouTube, if you reach a certain size as a channel, then you know you can um, you can you can earn you know some some money from like um, AdSense, which is like an advertising platform. Um, but you have to be a certain size, and the Camera Shack podcast is nowhere near that. So you know, it's just a small channel. Um, and I think the reality is. For for a podcast, I think the vast, the vast, vast, vast majority of podcasts, of course, are audio only podcasts. And I, you know, I always think like, well, I could make my life so much easier if I, if I did audio only. Um, but because it's a photography podcast, and it's you know it's a visual medium, I can't see the point in not doing a YouTube video version of it. You know, especially when we're talking about a particular type of photography, or when you know we're talking about images or. You know, when I'm interviewing a guest, uh, we're talking about their photography, of, of course, and you know, the imagery. I, there needs to be a way that I can showcase that photography as part of the show. And of course, that's where the video version comes in really handy. But the lion's share of all the post-production when it comes to um, you know making an episode like this goes into the video editing. It's the audio part, as we've discussed earlier, nowadays, um, is it's a lot quicker than, than the whole video thing. And you know, same thing with you know interviewing a guest, for example. So you mentioned Ecamm, which is a software that I'm, well, that we both use actually, so that we can talk to each other. Um, you know, there's there's a cost factor in that, and all the rest of it. So it's just a you know, it's one of these things. Um, it's not. I'm not saying you know, it's not. It's it doesn't cost the world to uh, to create a show like this, but it, it there's a cost factor involved, and so every little bit. Every little bit helps. We have a supermarket chain over here in the UK called Tesco's, and their their slogan is "Every little helps," and it's true. Every little helps. <laughs> Every little helps. I love it. That's that's it. Right, but today we are talking about um, some awesome ways that that you can up your photography game. Um, I was going to say in twenty twenty four because because everybody says that, but the reality is you can up your photography your photography game in any year. It could be any year. It could be twenty twenty five, twenty four, twenty three. Right now, if you're taking the opportunity, if you listen to this right now, now is the time to up your game. So we've thought about a number of different things um, that that really anybody can do or remember to do uh, or focus on in order to make them a better photographer. That's the whole point. Now, do you want to start with your first uh, your first tip? So I've got like, I, I wasn't sure where we were going to go. So as we talked about before, I kind of went overboard and I wrote categories and, and I'm going to start <laughs> in the category of learning because, and what made me think of this was our mutual friend, David Bergman, who does Ask David Bergman for Adorama TV. He also does this shoot from the pit workshop, which yeah. I've done and you've done. And his most recent Ask David Bergman on YouTube for Adorama TV, he was at the workshop that you do with Dave Williams in Lofoten, uh, Norway. And he, during his Ask David Bergman, he did this really nice mention of your workshop and how people can find out about it and how people can do that. 
And he he said a particular sentence, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said something about, you know, even I never stop learning. And that hit so home to me. Like, I don't care how good you are. You can always learn. You can always be inspired. You can always go find a different way to do it. When I did David's workshop, I already photograph concerts. But sitting in a workshop watching David teach how to photograph concerts gave me moments of saying, uh, I agree with that. Oh, that's not how I would teach that. Or I'm so glad that he told the students that, right? But there's always one nugget of information that you're going to learn from somebody that you didn't think of or would have approached differently that could change the way you shoot. So my first tip is never stop learning and look at workshops and look at classes from people that you trust. Uh, Kirsten and Dave's workshop in Lofton Islands. David Bergman's shoot from the pit. Joe McNally does a ton of workshops all over the place, and I would kill to be at a Joe McNally workshop. Uh, Kelby One for online training, Flurn for online training. I do some workshops for Princeton Photo Workshops. Find somebody you like, Freddie Freddie Clark. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know Freddie or not, but Freddie does great classes on beverage and food photography. Find your interest and continue to learn always. And there are so many different ways that you can learn as well, you know, because... I, I've been in education for a long time. You know, I used to teach music uh, as a as my main my main job, you know, for a long time. And you know, I know that different people learn in different ways. There are different types of learners. You know, some people learn really well from reading books. My wife is one of these people. She's like, you know, she can read a book, and that's how she learns. Um, then there are people who need to have a visual component to it, and they're just visual learners. Like that would be me, for instance. Give me any YouTube video, you know, or or any person, and I can watch how somebody does it. I'll understand things better that way. And so there's a there's a, a method of learning for everyone. So you know whether it may be YouTube videos, and there are pros and cons with learning from YouTube because YouTube is phenomenal as a source of information because no matter what it is that you want to learn, you will find it on YouTube somewhere. But the downside is is that especially when you're first starting out with something, let's say when you're new to, not necessarily only photography, but let's say you're new to off-camera flash, for example, right? Or right. on-location lighting pick. or something. There's so many videos and so many aspects to it that it's really difficult to know what to start with, where to start, and where to go next. Because everybody's got the same problem. In the beginning, you don't know what you don't know. And so it's very difficult to, um, you know, to, to create a learning pathway and in education, you know, as a as a teacher, you know, I know how important it is to have a learning pathway where we have a progression route throughout a subject. You know, no matter whether that's learning how to play the guitar or whether it's maths or whatever or photography or whatever it may be, it's important to start at one point and then build on that like a Lego house, basically, so that we can create a solid Lego house with any with without any gaps in the end. And that's basically what you're what happens when you solidify your learning in the end. And so, so YouTube can be tricky with that, but there's are really great platforms. Um, you know, you mentioned some of them. Creative Life is another one that I that I love. Uh, uh, you know, um, I've been a subscriber to Creative Life for many, many years, and I've learned loads of stuff. Um, you know, I've learned uh, so many different uh, retouching techniques on Creative Life. It's unreal. 
you know, and business aspects and all the rest of it. Um, but going to workshops is that adds another dimension to it, and that's that's the that's the kind of the, uh, uh, the I call it the call and response sort of dimension where you can actually ask something specific and get a direct response to your question, which of course when you're watching a video is not really possible. Sometimes you can type in comments or whatever, but but generally speaking, you know, if you're if you're in a classroom with an actual human being, you can ask whatever it is, um, and and I I find that immensely useful. And I tell you what was really interesting, you know, running the the workshop in the Lofoten Islands, for example, where you know we did um, we kind of combined a number of disciplines all into one massive workshop. So we did a number of master classes. You know, Dave Williams ran master classes on uh, aurora mechanics and how to photograph the Northern Lights. You know, I ran some master classes on um, on on location lighting, off camera lighting, and you know how to work with models and that sort of thing. Because we also had you know, we had to, um, two uh, biking models with us all the time. As anybody who's been listening to this to this podcast now knows inside out because we've been talking about it forever. But um, so, you know, we had that masterclass, then we had landscape photography masterclass and so on, and, and we talked about editing and all the rest of it. So um, and it was interesting to see the, the different people that took part in that, in that workshop. They came from different areas and they had, they had sort of their expertise. Well, you know, one person's expertise may have been in you know, off-camera lighting, but then another person wouldn't know very much about it at all. So it was really interesting to see how you can create almost like a level playing field, you know, where everybody was almost on the same level. So you're basically all on the same page because then from there on, you can then take it further and then you can start creating. And, and because whenever we went on to location shoots, for example, which we did every day, um, you know, it's great for, for Dave and myself to be there because... Because the, the the locations were such that you could create amazing landscape photography. You want to know anything about landscape photography? Dave's right there. You just ask a question and he's right behind you helping you out. And then you can just pop a Viking model in it and, and turn it into, you know, into um into a portrait sort of situation in this in this amazing location. And then I'd be there you know, helping out, um, helping out with lighting and, you know, camera settings and uh, give them posing tips and ideas and stuff like that. So it was all just there, and it's it's this um, this sort of you know this kind of symbiotic relationship where you're you're constantly able to get feedback on what you're doing, and you can really really progress and get better and learn really quickly in that way. That's you know that's why that's why I always find so live workshops absolutely one hundred percent. But you know whichever way, and, whichever and it's time interesting. You are, yeah, and that's the thing. So where I teach karate, we have this kind of standard practice where we explain it because some people need to hear it audibly. Then we demo whatever we're doing because some people need to see it and then we practice it. And I'm so glad you brought up the issue with YouTube because you can find anything that you need to learn on YouTube. And the video that you can learn from, whatever it is you're looking for, is on YouTube. But finding it, you've got to find that instructor on YouTube, because you can't ask questions back to the video as easily without typing a comment, you got to find the instructor that works for you. And yes. we were talking about this before we started recording. And that is, you know, some people will say, do X and I disagree with it. Like I've seen people on YouTube say, oh, back button focus, that's a fad. It, don't use it. It's stupid. <laughs> well, I use back button focus. You've now insulted me. And I live on back button focus. I will never go back to, to 
not using back button focus. You're not the instructor for me. That doesn't mean you're not the instructor for somebody else. Oh, but absolutely. You got to you got to find that and that's that is the main thing is keep educating yourself, find what works for you and then lean into what works for you. Exactly. And you know, you got to remember that when it comes to um, education, you know, teaching and learning, it's a two-way street. So, you know, it's just like at school. If you remember when you went to high school or something, you know, and you know, obviously, let's say you you know, you compare your impressions of what high school was like for you with the impressions of your friends, for example. You know, you might say, oh, you know, Mrs. Brown, the math teacher, she was terrible. I hated her. I just didn't get on with her. And then somebody else in your class was going, oh, I loved her. She was great. I'm, you know. Exactly. I really tell Exactly. Her. And this, that's the thing. It's like sometimes, you know, they used to write teacher for, for anybody or for everybody. Um, on YouTube somewhere, but it's finding that person. That's that's the difficult part. And so sometimes it means that you know, if you want to, you know, if you're interested in something like I don't know, you know, skin retouching or something, you might have to actually watch 10, 12 different videos before you find the one guy or girl that that you really chime with and you connect with, and that you can really really um, learn from and have a positive learning experience with. And you know, and, and that's and, the, that's the thing. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It's, you don't remember, um, quite, I don't know, a couple of years ago or something, um, I was, who was it that I was talking to? I'm trying to remember. Oh, Tommy Reynolds. That's right. So I did, I did an interview with Tommy Reynolds and we were talking about, so Tommy had, he was running his um, his YouTube channel and he was, um, you know, teaching photography related things on there. Um, you know, and um, we were talking about how he got into that and, you know, and he, he told me that when he was first thinking about doing that, he was looking at YouTube and he, he thought about so many other, you know, uh, people on there that are already doing exactly the same thing. And so he got quite disheartened and thought, like, oh, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe there's just too much competition in there. Maybe it's, maybe it's already been done. Maybe I just should do something else. And then he thought about it and then he came to the conclusion that there is going to be an audience out there that will chime with him and it will be, you know, for whom he would be the perfect teacher, so to say. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, and it's the same thing. I mean, you know, when, when I teach, I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea, you know, as they say over here in the UK. Um, but that's fine. You know, I, I that's the thing. You know, I make, um, if you know, for instance, if you compare Dave Williams and me, we, we're both uh, making some uh, educational videos for Patipot. Um, and if you compare his videos to my videos, they're, they're somewhat different. I use sort of, slightly different elements in my videos and I'm sure I'm sure they don't necessarily chime with everyone but there'll be some people that they chime with you know and it's fine especially all the all the Star Trek related um, inferences <laughs> in my videos yeah. which just oh by know. speaking of which totally off track we started right. binging from start to end uh, Star Trek Next Generation we're finally on it, season 7 we've got 13 episodes left watching oh, wow. that watching that show beginning to end is amazing. There is one YouTuber I didn't mention that I need to mention. I don't know the guy. I'd love to meet the guy. His presentation is just spot on for what he teaches, and that's uh, uh, Pix Imperfect on oh, YouTube. Yes. is fantastic as well. Yeah. So absolutely, yeah, keep learning. absolutely. That's that's the thing. Hey, let me just jump in real quick to tell you about the amazing sponsor of this episode, Platypod. Platypod offers innovative camera support systems designed to unleash your creativity. With their stable, versatile, and portable solutions, you can capture stunning shots like never before. 
And I'm not just saying that. As the host of the Camera Shake podcast, I can personally vouch for Platypus' incredible products. They've become an integral part of the show. In fact, I'm surrounded by various Platypus products holding up lights, cameras, microphones, and so on. It's really helped to transform the way I make the show and the way I shoot at home, in the studio, and on location. But don't just take my word for it. Explore Platypod's website at www.platypod.com to discover their range of products, including the Platypod Extreme, Platyball Tripod Heads, and the brand new handle, of course. Make sure to follow Platypod on Instagram and Facebook at Platypod Tripods for exclusive updates, tips, and giveaways. By choosing Platypod, you're not only investing in your photography, but you're also supporting the Camera Shake Photography Podcast. Thanks again to Platypod, our amazing sponsor. Platypod, where innovation never sleeps. What's yours, though? What's your first tip? Oh, what's my first tip? Um, good question. Um, so, I think one of the one of the most important aspects for me is to really, um, to to basically master the, the sort of fundamentals of composition. You know, I think people are often sidetracked by the technical the technical side of photography, you know, the camera settings and what settings should my camera be on and should it be shooting in manual or whatever mode it should be, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think that that's a detriment to to really focusing on the composition thing. Ultimately, you know, I always think that, especially in the beginning, don't worry about your camera says You can set your camera to auto or use your phone. I mean, you can, it's, you know, your phone is perfect. We'll talk about mobile photography in a separate tip a little bit later but but basically you know it's it's a really great way to just to focus on composition and i see that in my youngest daughter for example she you know she likes photography she likes taking pictures but she's not really yet she's only 12 she's not really into the into the technicalities of it you know if i can set her camera to auto for her she'll be absolutely fine because she's more interested in, you know, where to place the subject. And she's really developed the sense of, and this is maybe because she's been listening to me waffling on about this forever, but she's really developed this this sort of spider sense for where something should be in the picture. And uh, she's really good at not putting things in the middle, which is sort of what every beginner does, you know, plonk it straight in the center of the picture. You know, so she's, she's really good at like thinking of, oh, what should my composition be? And um, and so it's, I think that's a, it's a really important aspect for me because I see so many images where I think like, huh, you know, it's technically so good, but the composition really doesn't work for me at all. You know, that's, so that, that would be my, my tip. Focus on the fundamentals of composition. So for me, it's interesting because I, I like to be a technical shooter. I like my pictures to be tack sharp. I like all of that. I like my composition to speak to me. But there are photographers out there that I know that, this is going to sound really strange, their technical photography is being technically beautifully not perfect. Right? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying technically not perfect in a good way. So my my kind of piggyback on yours would be, yes, you need to know composition. You need to study the lighting from the masters. You need to study composition. Like I have people argue with me, there should be no composition rules. 
there's a reason the rule of thirds works. There's a reason that we have the golden spiral or Fibonacci spiral. There's a reason that we think about, you know, not putting a horizon line in the center. There's a reason that we think about moving somebody to do a frame within a frame, because over centuries of painted art, etc., we know what works with the human eye and the human mind. But I argue that what you need to do if you really want to elevate your game is learn the technical way to use your camera. You should be able to use your camera without thought. Like your camera should be second nature to you so that you can free up that technical resource in your mind to think about that technical composition and everything so that you can break all of those rules, so that yes. you can break the technicality of the photo intelligently, not uh, well, you know, I wasn't thinking rule of thirds and I like it better because it's not rule of thirds and it's a little bit soft. And yeah, the motion is cool. I didn't know I was doing it, but I kind of like the motion in it. No, know why, right? Make intelligent, um, intentional choices yeah. that are imperfect. And that's awesome. Exactly. I call it shooting with intent. And this is the one thing I preach at every single one of my, of my workshops is, you know, whatever it is that you do, always do it intentionally. You know, so every decision you make is intentional. So there's intent behind yep. everything that you do. Um, we talk about lighting um, in, in a minute as well, separately. But, you know, at, when it comes to composition, for example, you know, studying the the fundamentals of composition, I think that's that's important because, because that will then allow us to deviate from those rules. Because, you know, I mean, we call them the rules of composition, the rule of thirst. Well, it's more like a guideline. It's not really a rule. You know, once we know the rule, we can then make an intelligent decision as to when we might decide not to follow that rule for a very good reason. You mentioned the horizon line in the middle, for example. That yeah. is true. Yeah. I don't know, 85% of the time. Yeah. However, there are incidences where actually the horizon line just works perfectly slap bang in the middle. You know, the thing about... Um, Reflection you know, shots. Good example. A reflection shot. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, yeah, reflection shots are a brilliant example. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, the the rule of thirds. You know, I I created a whole uh, series of, of photographs, three uh, three ads in a row, um, that has the subject slap bang in the center of of the image. There's no rule of thirds. It's it's just that's how it is, um, and and that's what makes those photos. It's a it's an integral part of those portraits. Is the fact that because it's a square format. You know, this subject uh, is slap bang in the middle and, and that's where it needs to be for this particular type of image. So it's, you know, again, it's, it's a, but all of that is intentional. It's not an accident. Um, and so knowing, knowing those rules of composition, uh, I think for me, th that's really the, the basis for you being able to expand on that and to know when to not follow those rules. Um, you know, and that's, that's the thing. Yeah, I would argue the thought just popped into my head. And I it, the first phrase that hit me was you should be able to defend your decisions and defend bothered me because it makes it sound like you're being challenged. You oh, yeah. should be able to explain your decisions yeah. to yourself. Like you should be able to look in the mirror as though you're teaching a class and explain why something works. Even if it was an accident, you should be able to look at it and explain and dissect this works because when you've done that, I think you'll 
elevate your game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 a really it's a really important thing. And so you know, looking at other photographs, you know, you just um, you know, even just going along to uh, you know to camera clubs, for example, and um, you know, listening to 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 uh, judges, um, you know, judging a competition can be really useful in that respect because people will point out there, and you may or you may not agree with all of those. That's a completely different thing. Um, but at least people, you know, you listen to people who point out these things to you and it's an incredibly valuable way to learn about composition in, in my view is when you, you know, for me anyway, again, I, that's that's the kind of learner that I am. But, uh, you know, just listening to somebody dissecting a photo can be so useful because you could take so, so much information um, from that. And again, you know, artistically, we're not talking about, uh, you know, artistic preferences or anything like that. That is completely everyone's, you know, each to their own. Um, and you can agree with something that a judge says. And not, you know, a lot of the time, I don't agree with what a judge says, but, but that's neither here nor there. You know, it's, they pick up on something in, in the image. Um, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think, oh yeah, that's uh, that's very clever. And sometimes I think, well, I don't actually agree with that because I like it the way that it is that Perfectly cool. Which in and but of itself is a lesson though. Yeah. Because it reinforces your thought process. So even when you disagree with yeah. them, you're getting something from that. Absolutely. Because because you're understanding what your own preferences are. And uh, the next time you're in a situation where you're making a photograph, you know, you can you can use those uh, thoughts and ideas and then intentionally apply them to the photo that you're creating. That's that's the important part of the thing. So, you know, shoot with intent, learn the rules, shoot with intent. And then know when, when to break the rules. Essentially, you know. Yep, I agree. Cool. What's your next? What's your next tip? Okay, so I'll switch categories here. I'll jump okay. into the post shoot phase, right? When you're editing, right? And for years, I've said, ignore the noise. Like I believe people are way too, way, way, way too worried about noise create an amazing amazing image and people won't notice the noise the most iconic images of my life are noisy as hell no <laughs> one looks at those photos and goes well damn that's noisy no one does that to an iconic photo and in today's world where we have the new ai noise reduction in lightroom which is insanely good i think people because they're so worried about noise, because they zoom into 100% and see the noise in the shadow and they freak out without thinking, well, but I'm going to export this at 1,000 pixels or 2,000 pixels. I'm going to post it on Instagram that's going to compress the crap out of my photo. And half the pixels I'm throwing away are the noise. People don't put that all together. They see it at 100%. They go, oh my God, I got to overdo it. And they run the AI noise reduction or Topaz noise reduction or whatever, and they run them at 100% and they make people look plastic. So my my tip kind of along that is always keep in mind, less is more. Don't, you know, like for example, I know world-class photographers that never use noise reduction. Less is more. Don't over-sharpen your photo. Don't over-noise reduce your photo. And more importantly, don't globally edit your photo when you don't need to. If you have noise in your photo, 
Like I just shot some photos at a concert venue I was at the other day for the venue, for Live Nation, for their marketing stuff of their VIP room. And dark room, super high ISO, and the dark rafters all came out very, very, very noisy. If I cared to noise reduce that, I don't have to run noise reduction on the furniture in the room or the bar or the people or because they're all lit. Right. So my 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 tip that I'm trying to get to is selective editing, not global editing when possible. If you only need to boost to sharpen one area to add dehaze to an area, texture, uh, clarity, whatever it is. If you can do it at a select area, do that. Don't do it globally. Less is more. Absolutely. And I'll come back to the clarity thing uh, because there's there's like a, there's a technique that I use a lot, especially with uh, things like concert photography. Uh, But just, just as you mentioned, less is more. It's so funny because I saw a, I saw a video, I think it was on TikTok or something with Ingvi Malmsteen. uh, For those listeners who remember him. that shoot. Super fast, uh, one of the fastest, probably the fastest guitarist on the planet or something. Mm-hmm. That's what he was hailed as in the 80s, I remember. But uh, he, he told the story of being in the studio recording a recording solo and the producer went, uh, you know, let's record it again. Um, you know, remember less is more. And he just looked at the producer and he completely misunderstood. He goes like, no, but no, more is more. More notes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... um, um Clarity, right. So concept photography is actually a really interesting thing. Um, so I, as you know, you know, I've, I've been shooting uh, concerts for, I don't know, the best part of 10, maybe 12 years or something like that. And uh, and one of the things that I've learned is uh, to use clarity very localized, in a very localized way. Because if you, if you increase clarity across the whole image, you're going to run into a lot of troubles, you know, with skin tones and a lot of stuff just starts People's looking People's faces don't look great with clarity. Yeah, not at all. Do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, denim looks amazing with Ooh, clarity. Yes. Hair, you can really give hair a real nice sort of punch. You know, beards uh, can potentially look great, but there's a danger that they end up looking too over-sharpened, to be cranky. Clarity I enough. use texture on those a lot more than yeah. clarity. Yeah, so I mean, I, that's true. So I differentiate between clarity and texture and dehaze a little bit. But do you remember um, a few years ago, the texture slider in, in Lightroom didn't exist and it was really literally just yep. clarity. So it was busy. So what I used to do was I used to br- I used brushes basically for those for those localized areas. And so it would change the uh, the amount of clarity depending on what it was that I was you know editing. So for instance, you know, let's say if you had a little bit of haze or some smoke in the air and you'd have a light beam going through the cutting through the smoke and you get all of that sort of smoky texture in the light beam, then just enhancing that just a little bit with clarity just in that light beam can really make it very effective. Exactly but if you went what out, I do. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, you know, sometimes like things like, um, like even the stage floors, if there's a little bit of texture on it, that can look great, you know, um, and stuff like that. But there are lots of areas where, that you just wouldn't touch with clarity where you, you know. So so it's, yeah, it's I agree. It's, it's really important to just, look at a lot of these um, effects, you know, in a, in a very localized way. Um, you know, same thing with enhancing shadows, for example. You know, you don't want to bring the shadows up necessarily across the whole image because there are certain areas, especially in a, con- in a concert context, that you actually want 
you want them to remain dark because you might be hiding a lot of stuff. There might be like crap in the back of the stage that you don't need to see, you know, that you can just hide in the shadow, you know, if you, and if you boost the shadows in that area, then all of a sudden you can see all that, all that shit that's and, in and, the cables. And, and for me, actually, it's the opposite even. And that yeah. is when I have that smoke and I have those light beams coming down and I might add a little bit of clarity into that to, to separate the smoke and not just make it a white blob. Yeah. The shadows in between, I may want to pull those back and darken those a little bit, but I don't mm-hmm. want to darken the guy's all black outfit that's on the stage. Yeah. So same thing. I'll use a brush with a little bit of dehaze, not just bring the shadows down, but a little dehaze as well. And I'll paint in those black areas between the spotlights. Exactly. And again, selective versus global changes your photography as soon as you embrace that. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we can go into dodging and burning and all the rest of it. We'll, we'll make another, yep. a separate episode about those, um, you know, retouching and editing techniques. Um, all of these are extremely useful because you're really just affecting very localized areas in the image. And you, you essentially, you know, you create, you create contrast. Um, within the image, which can then enhance certain areas and just make them pop. You know, so the, the, the common, um, the lingua franca of photography is to make something pop. And that's that's often the effect that that has. So yeah, very true. You know, use these things sparingly, use them only in the places in the image that need them. And don't go overboard because just like anything, you know, you can you can ruin a good meal by throwing in too much spice sometimes. You know, that's the thing. Yep. Cool. Um, I can't remember whose turn is it. Is it me? <laughs> it's yours. Yeah, <laughs> yours. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. All right. So we were talking about breaking the rules earlier, and I want to stick with that. Uh, and I want to talk about something called the Eiffel Tower effect, which um, is an effect that um, I don't know whether it was coined by our original friend David Williams, but he certainly wrote the book on it, um, on the Eiffel Tower effect. If you don't know, if you don't know uh, about this book, go look it up on Amazon or, or wherever any good bookstore. So the Eiffel Tower effect is basically where you have, imagine different landmarks, like famous locations around the world, like the Eiffel Tower, like Lake Louise in Canada, like, uh, I don't know, can't think of, oh, the Golden Gate Bridge, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, You'll see a lot of people taking the same photo from the exact same viewpoint. And you see that picture one, you know, a million times. And so what happens quite naturally, let's say you find yourself in that location. I have a little story when it comes to Lake Louise there in a second. You find yourself in that location and in your mind, you can see that image that you've seen a million times on postcards and on the internet and on Instagram, whatever. And you just, you just, that's, that's a, so for an invisible force that's pulling you into that same spot and it's sort of almost like forcing you like a Jedi mind trick or more like a Sith, an evil dark Sith mind trick it's forcing you to take that exact yeah. same picture that a million other people have already taken. And that's the Eiffel It's like Tower there's effect. a magnet on the ground where you're supposed to stand and it's going <laughs> to yes. suck you there and you're going to have to stand there and take the <laughs> shot. It's weird. Exactly. exactly. And I tell you, that exact same thing happened to me um, at Lake Louise. So Lake Louise is uh, the famous shot. Um, I'm sure most people have seen this before. Um, you know, there's some, there's some mountains in the background, the lake in the foreground. And it's the same exact shot that you see all the time. And the reason why you see it all the time is because, because it's as you walk up to the lake, this is the most logical place that you get to, right? As you walk up to the lake, and that's a little. And sort it's of a, a wooden... beautiful scene when you stand there. Oh, it's a beautiful scene, yeah. 
And of course, the minute, I remember when my wife and I arrived there, um, you know, there were loads of tourists in this very spot, all taking the same picture. And, you know, and we'd, uh, we'd driven there, it took us about, I don't know, a couple of hours to drive there. You know, we worked a little bit. I was really hungry. And I was looking over to my right. There's a beautiful hotel with an incredible burger bar. And I'm looking out and I'm going like, all right, okay, let's just do this. <laughs> I you know, placed myself in the middle with all these other people. I took the same shot of Lake Louise that everybody else did. And then I, I just went and, you know, and uh, had some to eat. In retrospect, when I came home and, you know, and, and I looked at the images, I thought, what a lost opportunity. Because I remember, like, on the left, on the right was this hotel. On the left uh, was, like, a really beautiful little um, jetty with lots of canoes and kayaks and a little boathouse. It's just a per Nobody was there, right? A perfect location to actually just... And it would have been, I don't know, 100 yards, maybe? Not, not, a big, not a big walk at all. But I could have just placed myself down there and maybe shot the lake, you know, with some of the, the colorful canoes in the foreground or something. I could have waited until somebody may have been, you know, um, canoeing on the lake and, uh, and you know, get it. It's just a matter of patience and not being hungry when you go to a location. That's the other thing. But so the Eiffel Tower effect for me is really, you know, it's, it's realizing what the sort of most common stereotypical photo is and then try and do something else. And when you see lots of people in one spot, make sure you do something else. Have a look, see what you can do, change the angle, go down low, walk around a corner, you know, take a few steps to the left or to the right, you know, find a different perspective to photograph this particular landmark or whatever it is that, that you may photograph. And just try and do something that's out of the ordinary. And don't go, you know, don't, don't let yourself be swept away by the masses and do the same thing that everybody else does. Um, that, to me, is, is, is probably one of the most important things that I try to remind myself of whenever I'm anywhere. Uh, and the first thing, but whenever I see a crowd of people, that's, you know, I, I now know that that's not where I belong. <laughs> I, need to, I need to figure out something else. Um, I could mention I, I, that Pod make a lot of tools that make it very easy for you to use different angles, um, but uh, but I won't. <laughs> you know, it's funny because what you mentioned, I learned from a well-known concert photographer by the name of Alan Hess, San Diego-based. I didn't know him at the time. Now we're friends. And he actually is a podcaster as well with Dave Clayton, the He Shoots, He Draws podcast. But the first time I met Alan... It was at a Mayhem Festival here in Southern California. This is a festival doesn't exist anymore. Three stages, big bands on all three stages. And it's like, I don't know, one o'clock in the afternoon. They're just getting started with some of the bands. And I'm standing there and I look over and I see Alan. And I go over and I introduce myself nervously to him. Hey, Alan, I'm Steve. It was, and I spent that afternoon along with shooting, mainly watching Alan, like studying what he did and how two things he did have stuck with me for the rest of my photography. A, everybody would be kind of moving, almost like this single organism. You'd have 20 photographers moving to the same spot back and forth. And Alan would walk out to the edge. And if we moved that way, he'd go the other way. 
And it was weird. And the other thing was everybody else was running and he would very casually and very calmly walk, look, pull up the camera. It's what we talked about before, shooting with intent. But yeah. he had this ability to not be doing what everybody else was doing. And it was beautiful to watch. And I do agree, by the way, on the platypod. I don't know if I can reach it. But, so platypod extreme, platypod handle, platyball, and then this is a moment MagSafe mount for my phone. Um, these tools can get you shots that you normally would not get if, and here's one of the things I always, I always talk about, it's the six foot man syndrome. And that is people walk up to Lake Louise, or they walk up to the Eiffel Tower, or they walk up to name your iconic location here, and they're six foot tall, and they pull a camera up to their eye, and they take the picture from the same viewpoint that every person who walks by there has ever seen. And literally just kneeling down would be a view most people didn't see. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, that's, it's, such a, it's such an important thing to bear in mind. Um, like I said, Dave Williams has literally written a book on this uh, called The Eiffel Tower Effect. Um, I don't know whether it was coined The Eiffel Tower Effect before the book or not. Nevertheless, sounds like a good way to remember it. Um, you know, so no matter whether you are photographing the Eiffel Tower, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Tower of London, or whatever it may be, you know, try and find a different angle and a different perspective. And yeah, sometimes it's just as easy as, you know, going low, going high, you know, going sideways, whatever it may be, shooting through things is such an important thing. You know, I always find that finding something that maybe creates a little bit more depth to your image, but everybody just stands there with that, you know, camera on a tripod, you know, doing the six foot thing. Um, and maybe you, you might be able to, you know, place your camera somewhere where there's something blocking the view in the foreground, maybe a little bit, you know, so you can create some extra elements there, maybe shooting through some leaves if there's a tree around, or, or even just maybe just grabbing some leaves and actually just, you know, waving them in front of the in front of the lens or something, just to create a little bit of depth to it, uh, can can make a massive, massive difference. Just thinking outside the box. Maybe that's what it used to be called. Thinking outside the box. Yeah. Thinking outside <laughs> the box. That's that's it. That's it. Yeah. So all right. So for absolutely. my oh, so for, for my it. next one, uh years ago I had Trey Ratcliffe on my show. And he's been on a couple of times. Super nice guy, amazing photographer. And it was a photograph of, uh, I think it was the first time he was on, and it was a photograph of a museum in, I think it was in Paris or London, one of the two. And it was super colorful and he was, you know, multiple stories and really vibrant. And strangely, about two thirds of the way through the show, he started getting into deep color theory and how he engineers the photo in post through dodging and burning, etc. thinking about how somebody's eye is going to travel through the photo. And I always was interested by that. Like, here's a photographer that's not creating art for himself alone. He's understanding that the art doesn't do anything unless I put it out there for people to see. And he's thinking about how does average viewer look at my photo? Do they look at the photo? Do they start here and work their way through? And he engineered into this photo certain thinking about how people would follow through looking at everything in the museum with darker spots to give their eyes a rest. And if you've been into photography for any amount of time, 
you may have heard that most people's eye will go to the brightest spot in your photo first. And some people will say it's the most saturated spot in your photo. And the truth is, kind of depends on the exposure of the photo. But in a sense, the most saturated comes out as the brightest in certain shots, right? So what I would say is two things. When you look at your pictures, take the time to think. If I had never seen this photo, if I was not there at the concert, if I didn't hear the music, if I didn't see the guitarist jump in the air, if I wasn't there when the bulls were running down the street, if I didn't, all of that, right? I want you to think what the average person, when they looked at your photo, where would their eye go first? How would it traverse through the shot? And is it what you want? So if they're going to go, for example, I'll, I'll use a portrait as an example. Person's eye is going to go to the brightest spot in the shot. But let's say the way that you lit this person, they were high contrast on their face and one side was lit, but not over bright, really tastefully done. And the other side of their face is in a dark shadow and they're wearing a white blouse. The eye's going to go to the white blouse because it's probably brighter than their face. And so here's your trick. Here's a tip built into this. In Lightroom or whatever your software is, rotate the image upside down. It screws with your mental perception of the shapes. And when you rotate the image upside down, you will very quickly see the brightest spot in your photo. Because you don't have any recognizable shapes to draw into. So the brightest spot and the most saturated spot will jump out at you and then decide to yourself, is that what you want? Because if you really want them to look at that person's face, you might need to bring the highlights down selectively, like we talked about before, not globally, in the blouse. So upside down, you'll find the spot and then look at that image upside right and think to yourself, what is my subject? What do I want people to look at first? If there are multiple subjects, how do I want their eye to traverse the shot and engineer your shot that way? That'll raise you to the next level. Absolutely. So it's a very interesting uh, interesting thing. So as part of the masterclass that I taught in the Fulton, uh, one of the things that we're talking about is, is what the what the human eye is is attracted to in a, in a portrait. And um, it, it usually boils down to it's usually a matter of contrast, predominantly. So the brightest, the brightest thing in the spot, the most saturated thing in the in the photo, um, but also human faces. For example, the minute you have a human face in the in a photo, you know uh, we are programmed to basically fixate on um, on the human face pretty much straight away. But in a portrait, for example, again, it's you know it really always comes back to intent. Like, what's your intent in a in a portrait? Usually, it's to photograph the, a person. And the most important part of a person in a portrait is usually the face. So if you have something that Specifically detracts, eyes, even. Specifically eyes, yeah, exactly. Um, so if there's something that detracts from that, like a white blouse, for example, you're going to have to do something about that. You know, and so, um, and so that's, that's the thing. And so turning a, you know, flipping a, a photo upside down is actually really useful because it immediately, it breaks with our sort of our natural uh, instinct to find the face because a face upside down, all of a sudden, it does, it registers differently from a face the right way around, obviously. And, you know, we, as humans, we want to see faces in everything. And a good example is that 
Do you remember that, um, the face on Mars? Do you remember that thing? It's like a rock formation. And when, I just can't remember which, you know, which probe took the original picture of it, but it just looks like a human face with a helmet lying on on the Martian surface. And, you know, and immediately there was, there was like a gazillion of, uh, you know, I don't know, conspiracy theories about that. And, you know, yeah, you look at it, the shadows, and it looks like there's two eyes, it looks like there's a nose, it looks like there's something like a mouth. Well, it's just the way that this particular rock formation was hit by the sun at that particular point and the shadows that it threw. And we immediately associate that with the human face. Our brain just goes there straight away. So we are programmed biologically to seek out human faces. There is probably a million of different biological reasons to explain that, but that's just what happens. So, you know, since that, that being the case, of course, and we communicate through the eyes, which is why you mentioned the eyes, that's why the eyes are so important. Um, but, you know, because of that, we need to make sure that when we're shooting a portrait with intent, we need to make sure that, that we're leading the eye to the face in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, that can be directly, three heads in a row. Good example again, the face is the most important part of that portrait, um, especially because the, you know, the, uh, the expressions are so extreme and weird. And that's, of course, what, you know, what, what I'm trying to get people to look at. So everything else around that just tells a story. All the, the objects that, you know, the, the subjects are handling and all the different bits that are in the photo, they're just telling an extra story that gives you some more context to it. But really, the focus of, of, of attention is the face and the, the facial expression. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really important to make sure that the balance is right. And again, you know, dodging and burning, super helpful technique using vignettes for example depending on uh, you know and also making sure that the background doesn't distract from the main subject that's that's a, a very 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 common beginner's mistake you know not using depth of field to to their advantage for example um you know having shooting from an angle where there's maybe we can all of a sudden we can see a busy background maybe it would have been an idea to just take a step to the left or to the right, and maybe we could have cut out some busy stuff in the background that would have that would have just helped us not to distract the attention away from from our main subject. All of these things, you know, become become important. And that's that's really something to to really think about. When we point a camera at at our subject, of course we're focusing on a subject, but we need to get used to taking a look around the whole frame, checking the background. Is there anything? that might be distracting. Is there a flagpole or a light, light lamppost coming out of somebody's head? <laughs> All of these things. Um, again, one step to the left, one step to the right, they have to solve the problem altogether. And sometimes the person isn't the subject, and that's the thing. I see people take pictures sometimes, and they assume because there's a human in it that it's a portrait. Uh -huh. But a portrait alone is different from an environmental portrait. So if you're yes. taking a photo of a lab technician, yeah, the lab technician's the subject. Or is it? Right? Maybe the maybe the subject is all the test tubes and machinery and the person is the anchor for all of that other stuff at which point your editing may go different. So again, know your photo, think about what your subject is and then confirm that the human eye that doesn't know the scene is going to go through it the way you want them to. That's the power of the storytelling. 
People sometimes say to me, you know, when we talk about the fact that, you know, look, you're telling a story. What's the story that you're trying to tell? And they're like, I'm not trying to tell a story. I'm taking a picture of the Grand Tetons. I'm taking a picture of the Grand Canyon. I'm taking a picture of, you know, again, insert, you know, famous location here. But you are telling a story. You may be telling a story of, you know, sunset in the wilderness. You may be telling, I mean, there's a number of ways that you could look at this, but there's always a story. There's always a subject. You got to decide what it is and follow through like a viewer, not just like a creative. Exactly. And that's actually, that's, that would have been my next point is to tell a story in your photograph. You know, try and tell a story. It, there are so many different ways that we can tell a story. We can tell a story um, in an environmental sense, you know, where we place our main subject in a particular situation, in an environment. And by main subject, I mean, it could be a person, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It could actually be an object, you know, for example. It could be a car or, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, but we're placing that in a certain situation where, you know, um, we understand a little bit more about what's going on in that photograph. It's the storytelling aspect. We can tell a story in one photograph. We can tell a story across a number of photographs. Triptychs. Three heads in a row. Three heads in a row. Exactly. Three heads in a row is actually yeah. a triptych is a sequence of three images that across this sequence of three images basically tells a little story. And three heads in a row is actually yeah, it's a great example for that because that's exactly what happens. That's why it's called three heads in a row. It's because it's literally three heads in a row. Um, but the idea there is is that um, I'm photographing a, a particular person, but across these three images, we're learning a little bit more about this person, about what they're into, maybe what their profession is, what you know they hold dear, what, what kind of activities they like, um, and what they do. Right. And you know, and so and that's that's the storytelling aspect um, with that. And then of course the way that that these subjects interact with those uh, with those objects that tells us a little bit about that particular person's personality, for example, you know, um, what are they like? Are they, you know, I mean, usually to be honest with you, anybody who sits for a three heads in a row shoot, um, they, they are going to be, they're just not going to take life too seriously. Let's put it this way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because that's just the kind of shoot it is. But yeah, so tell a story in, in your photograph, um, you know, let the viewer in. Otherwise we're just looking at a pretty picture. It has one of the things it, you don't, it doesn't take long scrolling through Instagram until you hit, you know, a bunch of photos of pretty girls, basically. You know, it, it really doesn't take long. And I always think to myself, well, I mean, okay, I mean, these models are pretty. I, like, what's the story here? There's no story there. It's, you know, all of these images become samey. It's, it's, it's all the same, to me anyway, it's all the same thing unless... Unless there's something interesting, you know, it just makes you feel like you've seen the same picture over and over again. Well, this time, okay, it's another blonde model. Oh, well, there's another brunette. Okay, well, there's another guy who's buff. You know, it's one of the things, by the way, I've, I've really, um, I love about um, a lot of the Viking photography um, that that I've sort of, that, you know, that we create as part of the, the photo workshop, but also, of course, in doing research in that subject, a lot of the photography in, in that realm that I've come across is because because there's always a story to it, you know, um, because a Viking isn't just a Viking. It's really the story that makes it. Well, you know, you know, because if you think about it, that photograph can communicate so many different things. Like you can have a Viking in there, but the story could be aggression. You know, it could be like he's there to conquer and, you know, 
um, and is up for war or something. Or it could be protection, maybe protecting somebody. It might be love. There's so many different um, stories that that can be told with a guy in full-on Viking gear with a sword and axe in his hand. And that's the clever thing, is is trying to go beyond, okay, here's a Viking, he's going to attack you. Well, as if that's the same story that you always tell with all the pictures, it's going to get pretty boring pretty quickly. But I've, I've come across so much um, or so many images that go way beyond that and, and tell all these very, um, you know, very subtly different uh, different stories. That's I've really been impressed by that because I didn't necessarily know very much about. I don't even know what to call it: Viking photography, Viking model, historical modeling, something like that. It's it's interesting to me though that you you said your pick would be storytelling because when I mentioned it. I, I didn't even think about going that deep, but what you just described with the Viking thing, and it's like, look, if all you're going to do is show a Viking conquering, then it's been done before. You've circled back to the Eiffel Tower syndrome, right? Yeah. A lot of this is so intertwined that uh, you really, again, it sounds like we're describing sometimes when we talk about photography, a golf shot, Right. Keep your knees bent, keep your back straight, keep your chin up, push your butt out, keep your posture, put your left hand here, put your... It sounds like there's 400 moving parts you've got to remember at once. But the truth of the matter is so much of this is so interrelated that telling, you know, telling a story also circles back to look at your photo like you've never seen it before, right? What is an average viewer going to do when I've judged image competitions? I have people come up to me afterwards sometime and go, no, 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 you misunderstood. So uh, I, I took this because, oh man, the, the band was so good and this girl was crowd surfing and they dropped, you know, a glass and I'm sitting there going, okay, all I see in that photo is a cactus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't see it. In other words, I'm making that up, but in other words, I don't see anything you just told me because I wasn't there. Yeah. And you're mad that I judged your image poorly because you had this grandiose scene in your mind, but you didn't tell me that scene. So it is so important that you tell that story, that you really honestly look at your shot and 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 not just tell it for yourself, but you make sure that the audience is going to see it. When you brought up Instagram, the first thought that hit me was, I wonder how long it would take me if I pulled up Instagram right now and I just started scrolling through my main feed before there was an image that stopped me purely because of the image, not because it was shot by my buddy Ant, not because it was a whiskey glass shot by Freddie Clark and I collect whiskeys, but it stopped me because of the image. Like I'm scrolling through and went, oh shit, look at that. Yeah. I wonder how long that would take. And that's the problem is these. this is not a professional photographer site, Instagram. We think of it as that. We think of it as a photography site. It's a photo site. It's not a photography world site. Uncle Johnny is posting the snapshot of you know him on the ferry going to New York that I don't care about. But there are photos up there that tell stories. Seek them out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very. It's, it, that's actually that's a really important thing. It's just to remember that, of course, you know the people that will be 
looking at that photo um, after you've created, they, they are not where you are. They're not in the same place. They don't necessarily have all the other, they don't understand the whole environment necessarily. So you have to show it somehow. You have to communicate that, which makes you as a photographer, it makes you the communicator between you know, what you're experiencing or the story that you want to tell, whatever goes on in your head. You need to communicate that to the the audience that eventually ends up looking at their picture, and that's the that's the important part. The the storytelling thing, by the way, is um, it also it comes into play when you're working with models because it's a very important thing. So you know, I'm talking about Viking models. Uh, it's very interesting uh, working with um, with Rolf uh, Van Mielo in over in Norway, um, and one of the things that we talked about in the in the masterclass also was to to when you're working with a model like that, it's to create a backstory. You're trying to communicate to the model what the situation is, what's going on, what are you trying to achieve? Like, has he just come off of a of a Viking longboat and is he ready to ransack the British Isles? Is that what's going on? Or is he protecting his woman? Or it's like, you know, just build a little story, a little situation, explain that to the model so they can put themselves into that character and then they can give you exactly what you want. Otherwise communicating with a model as you're shooting can become incredibly difficult and frustrating if you can't get them to do what you want them to do because you've got that story in your head but you can't communicate it and relay that to your model it very often it just helps to make up that little story and it was interesting to hear from rule actually how important that is from his point of view because as a photographer naturally we think you know we, we look at we look at it from a photographer's perspective. But right. when you put yourself into the model's shoes for a minute, um, you just then you start to understand how important that is actually for the model to just get an idea. They can't give you the poses and the expressions that you seek unless they understand what it is that you're trying to create. And that's exactly. the thing that that's the thing that you need to you know communicate. And so it's um that's a that's a very interesting thing. And so we did that all the time. We just made up these little stories, you know. Whenever we got to the location, it's like, oh, what's happening here? Well, <laughs> we had one of one of our uh, participants <laughs> always, for some reason, his his sort of thing was, uh, you know, he he wanted to create murder scenes. <laughs> that was the thing. How is he going to murder her this time? Hmm, let's have a think. <laughs> but it's yeah. funny. It's funny, but it's it's acting, really. Right, of course it is. Yes, if yeah. you create, if you create a backstory to whatever it is you're shooting, literally, if you're standing at Lake Louise and you create a backstory, right, uh, it will change what you shoot. Absolutely, yeah, that's uh, that's the thing. So, yeah, so uh, yeah, remember to tell a story and you know make sure that that uh, that story is clearly communicated to whoever looks at that at that image. Um, Anyway, that was my point. What's your next point? Okay, so this one's going to be uh, more when when you're shooting and when you're in the practice of doing photography. And that is to challenge yourself by experimenting. When you go on a shoot for a client, let's say, get the safe shot, right? If you're doing an environmental portrait, if you're doing a headshot, if you're doing whatever it is, get the safe shot that the client's going to pay for and the client's going to love. And then throw a wrench into it and experiment with something. Now, the problem with experimenting on the fly, on a paid job, is looking like you don't know what you're doing. <clears throat> so to do this, it does have some prerequisites, right? 
you, again, I mentioned it earlier, you got to know your gear inside and out. If suddenly you look at that person and go, you know what? Lean your head out the window. Well, now your exposure is going to change. And you've got to be able to adjust that on the fly. That's knowing your gear, knowing how to change the settings quickly. And in a way, not knowing the settings, but knowing the exposure triangle, you, you need to know, in my opinion at least, you need to know your reciprocals. So if your exposure is, you know, we'll throw a number out there. If your exposure is 400th of a second and ISO 1600 at F4, and suddenly they lean their head out the window and you need a stop more light on their face, you need to be able to very quickly say, my exposure was right. I need one stop more. What do you need to do to get one stop? Are you going to go from ISO 1600 to 3200? Are you going to go from F4 to F2.8? Are you going to go from 400th of a second to 200th of a second, right? You need to be able to adjust that on the fly very, very quickly. And what that will enable you to do, that's the prerequisite. That's not the tip, right? That's the prerequisite because what that enables you to do, we talked about it when we talked about the technical stuff and knowing your gear well enough and knowing the technical so that you can break it. Well, it's the same thing here. If you know how to make these adjustments without thought, it frees you up to get out of your body and just do stuff. It frees you up when you're doing a corporate headshot for a Fortune 500 company to throw a joke at the person in front of the camera and get them to laugh and have the wherewithal to snap the shot and know that you're properly exposed, right? To have them jump in the air out of nowhere and just go, hey, jump. And they jump full suit and tie. I'm making stuff up, but I'm making it to make a make an idea. They jump full suit and tie and you're still at 1 60th of a second. And you're not going to get up. Now, again, technical doesn't always matter, but let's say you wanted to freeze that and you wanted 320th of a second. Okay, how do you get from 60 to 320 when everything was exposed properly at 60? If I go to 320, what do I need to adjust? Well, I need to open up that aperture. Well, but if I'm already at F4, I've only got one stop of light. Maybe I need to stop in two thirds. Okay, I got to adjust my ISO two thirds to make up the difference. You got to know those numbers so that you can get the safe shot and then play. And my thing is when, when at all possible, and it's not possible with every client, right? But when at all possible, go in and get the safe shot and try and get one, I don't want to use the word weird, but I'm going to, and get one weird shot, right? Just one shot where you go, oh, what the hell? And shoot it. And it works. It doesn't work. Nobody cares. You got the safe shot. But again, that will open you up to some amazing successes. That's absolutely right. I mean, playing it safe is not necessarily always a good idea. Although we do always say when, you know, when you want to experiment, don't experiment with a client at a shoot because that can be dangerous. Right. But yeah. but here's the thing. Um, knowing but your that's gear where is, you're set up. Exactly. So, you know, knowing your gear is so important. Whenever you get a new piece of gear, you know, a new light, um, a new camera body, a new lens, a new modifier, whatever it is, you know, make sure you really get to know that piece of gear inside out. You know, experiment, you know, play around with that. You know, understand it. A different modifier, you know, 
before you light might actually have a massive impact on um on you know on the intensity of the light that you need for instance you put a grid in front of it how how many stops of light are you going to uh, are you going to lose i know with my my octobox i'm going to lose pretty much exactly a stop of light when i put that thing on that you know or stop and a half so you know i can adjust very quickly and i'm there within a shot or something you know i'm immediately there i don't waste any time i can experiment you know i can like to play around i know my gear well enough um to you know to make those decisions um you know, so the same thing is true with um, with different lenses, for example. What kind of effect do you want to use? What kind of focal length are you going to use for a particular shot? And what kind of effect is that going to be? Um, you don't want to be standing in front of a client, switching out lenses, trying a thing. You know, oh, that doesn't work. Let's try another thing. Oh, that also doesn't work. That's going to be pretty lame. <laughs> but it's not going to, you're not going to end up with the best of reputations, you know, especially not if you're doing that in front of a paying client. But if you know exactly, if you know your gear and your equipment and you know exactly what you're going to achieve, then you can literally take that. I always, again, this is a perfect um, a perfect thing to compare to music. And I always really explain it like that. Um, and anybody who's ever learned a musical instrument will understand this immediately. Now, one of the things you do, let's take the guitar, for example. If you were to learn how to play guitar solos, one of the first things you do is you learn a scale. You know, a scale is basically just a selection or a collection of notes that will work in a particular key, right? So in a given situation, these are the notes you could play. All of those notes are going to sound good. None of them are going to sound out of key or, or wrong or whatever else. Um, well, you can use all these notes. And that might be five notes, playing a pentatonic for beginners, or it might be, you know, it might be seven notes if you're playing any diatonic scale type of thing. You know, but... When it's solo time and you, you're improvising, the last thing you, you want to do is play that scale from the first note to the last note and then all the way back down again because that's not a solo. You know, you get to learn how to use these notes and then put them into some kind of, <laughs> some kind of sequence that they make musical sense. And a lot of things come into it. No choice. You know, no choices against particular chords, playing chord tones, playing arpeggios, phrasing, rhythm, you know, often it's often said that the notes that you don't play are more important than the notes that you do play. All of the, all of that, that's what you've got to learn. But you need to learn your scale first so that you actually know which notes you can use for your, for your improvisation, for your solo. Once you've got that down, however, then you can break some note, uh, some rules because you can sometimes deviate a little bit from a scale and move outside of that scale and then come back in. It's just knowing how to do that, um, that really requires a really, really uh, sound understanding of, of the scale tones initially uh, before, you can, before you can sort of venture outside of that, um, of that scale. So again, it's just knowing your equipment, knowing your basic tools really, really, really well, um, knowing what to do with that. And, you know, I use the same scale no matter whether I'm, what's a good example? So I can use the same scale practically and uh, with very little adjustments, you know, I can sound like, um, I can sound like I'm playing a jazz lick um, or I can sound like Slash or I can sound like Robin Ford uh, or I can sound like B.B. King. I'm not using any different notes. I just know what to do with those notes in a given context. And that's, you know, that's, that's the same. It's the same for photographers. You know, you use the same camera body, the same lights, the same modifiers, but you can create lots of different things depending on how you use them in a particular context. And 
or well, that's required is just knowing your gear really well. And, and that's the thing, because that that frees you to get out of your mind. And yeah. it frees you like I always I always when I see a new band, right, or a young band, and the guitarist is playing his stuff, but he's trying to do guitar face as he's playing, but he keeps looking down at his left hand, right? Looking down at the left hand, looking down at the left hand, because he's still in the left hand, right? He's still thinking about the mechanics. Don't misunderstand me. Yes, great guitarists look at their left hand. That's not what I'm saying before I get a weird email, okay? <laughs> but there is a point where you see an Eric Clapton, you see a Jimmy Page, you see a Slash, you see a, you know, ex-guitarist here, where they're not even aware that that guitar is there. That guitar is now an extension yeah. of their body, and that's what we're talking about today is elevating, and that's the guitarist elevating their craft. They're not aware of their left hand. It's just happening to an extent, right? Same thing in photography. You got to get out of the technical. You got to end up with something that's technical, but you can't do it by thinking about the technical. That has to be second nature. Yep. This is art, right? This is a creative medium. If all you're thinking about is your shutter speed, your aperture and an exposure triangle and blah, 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 you're missing something. You're exactly. missing something here that you need to find something here, not here. And the important thing with that is, you know, the question is, how do we get there? Well, it's just practice, rinse, repeat. It's, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Right. The same thing when you, when you play the guitar, you, know, you learn how to play the guitar. It's, you, know, you can think about the guitar as much as you want. You can listen to the guitar as much as you want. You can watch other players as much as you want, but you're not going to get any better at playing the guitar unless you actually sit down and play the damn thing. And that's, you know, that's the thing. Um, there's no way around that. You know, you're not going to get technically better or, or like you're not going to make a connection with an instrument unless you actually sit down and put in the hours and put in the graft. And the same thing is really true for photography. No, go ahead. No, no, I sense you want to say something. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, you know, you, you said something here that made me think of something else. And that is this also relates to you need to know what the, that gear's limits are, too. Right? Yeah, absolutely. By absolutely, learning yeah. your gear that well, you're also going to know that your particular original Canon 7D at 3200 ISO, that's the limit for the noise you're willing to accept. So as you're making yeah. these adjustments yeah. on the fly so that you be, can be creative or that using an electronic shutter for shooting the concert that you're doing is going to give you some rolling shutter effect or is going to make it more likely that with LED lights, you're going to get banding. You have to know your gear's limits to do everything that we're talking about. And we've all learned our gear's limits when uh, sh when shooting the Northern Lights because, you know, focusing on the damn things, that's hard. No matter whether you shoot Canon. I never thought about that. <laughs> oh my God, I tell you what, no matter whether you shoot Canon, Nikon or whatever it is, it's like we were all very, very very quickly aware of the limitations of our equipment. Oh my God, it was just, that was the most insane thing. Uh, you know, and I've said this before, and I'll, I'll stand by this. Um, photographing the Northern Lights have, without a shadow of a doubt, been the most difficult thing I've ever had to do in photography, without a shadow of a doubt. And you wouldn't think it, but when you find yourself in that situation where it's pitch black, and, you know, people often think like, oh, yeah, well, it's Desert Mountain. You just focus on the mountain. You know, it's close enough to infinity. Yeah. Uh, 
the sky's pitch black, the mountain's pitch black, you can't see the mountain. As far as you're concerned, there's no mountain. It's just pitch black. You've got nothing to focus on. You know, um, then you can say like, oh, well, I'll just focus on the stars. Uh, well, but if it's overcast, then there are no stars to focus on. What are you going to focus on? Um, you know, and and uh, you know, sometimes it's it's a matter of like maybe finding a light on a different island somewhere in the distance. You know, if you're lucky, waiting for a car to come around. You know, because you're literally in the pitch black and there's, you know, there's, you're just waiting. This maybe a you know, there's, there's a, a mountain in the, dis- in the distance, there might be a road, and then you wait for a car at two o'clock in the morning, not too many cars around in the Lofoten Islands. Once in a while, there's a car. You just wait for that moment, you know, and as soon as you see the headlights in the, in the far distance, you focus on that thing, and then you tape down your lens with some gaffer tape, and that's <laughs> that's how you can make sure that damn thing stays. You know, it's just things like that. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, you're just realizing, I mean, I realized, actually, to be honest with you, I know... Nikon's autofocus gets a lot of crap usually, but focusing in the pitch black, I am impressed. I'm impressed that Z6 II outshone some of the, some of its competitors um, by a country mile. Very impressed with the way that it worked. Um, but you know, I have to say, the first night we went out, or the first time I went out ever to shoot the, the Northern Lights, eighty percent, eighty-five percent of my images were completely out of focus. Um, it's by far the most difficult thing to master in in the dark and you're doing all of that you're trying to solve problems you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on whilst you're standing there in the cold with the arctic polar wind in your face that's tough <laughs> yeah oh yeah god i wish i'd gone in that workshop it would have been so oh, fun. man oh well you know so, what, the last one, so what's your next one um okay so my next one is uh-huh, that's a big one for me anyway it's Prioritize. I can't say the word. Prioritize. 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 <laughs> Prioritize. Quality over quantity. That to me oh, is yes. is one of the most important things um, <laughs> that you can do. Like I always say, you know, you know, you know what it's like. Like when you know you post a lot of images uh, on on Instagram or Facebook or any social media thing, you know, whatever. And you know what it's like. You post an image that's maybe a really cool image, and then you know you get lots of people coming up to you afterwards, going like, "Oh man, you're such a great photographer. You're so awesome. But your images are amazing. All that kind of stuff." Um, and I always think to myself, "You haven't seen. You've only seen that one picture that I posted. You didn't see the four thousand or three thousand nine hundred ninety-nine images that I showed that were crap and that didn't make the cut." You know. So if you see those. You change your opinion of my photography very quickly, you know. It's just that I, you know, I also I always say about myself, my talent isn't in making pictures. My talent is in filtering out the very image that I show you. That's my talent, <laughs> you know. So, um, so you know, generally speaking, um, yeah, prioritizing quality over quantity. Uh, you know, work on your craft. You know, create images of as high a quality as you possibly can. Um, nobody cares where you can whether you post a hundred pictures, you know, on Instagram. Just focus on the on the images that are really outstanding and 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 be the delete button's best friend. Like my best friend is the delete button. I love the delete button because I use it all the time. <laughs> you know, something doesn't cut the mustard, shabang, it's gone. 
you know, and that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Quality over quantity. Yeah. You know, if you're the person, I apologize that I'm saying this about you before I do. If you're the person that's doing a 50 photo dump, a 20 photo dump onto Facebook or putting 10 photos in your post on Instagram when three of them were good, when one of them was good, stop. So I'm not a great photographer. Don't claim to be. There are some people out there who like my work and think I'm really good. I could debate them all day long, but the truth is I know why they may think that. And it's because I only posted the one shot that we both like. Right. <laughs> they exactly, didn't yeah. see, you know, I took a thousand shots at that show and I gave 60 to Live Nation. That's probably exaggerating. You know, I shot yes Saturday night. And I think I shot uh, 400 shots of which probably 120 were of the venue and the fans and stuff like that. Probably shot 300 shots of, the, of, of yes. And I think I probably gave them 20. Um, now I kept more than that because it's Steve Howe. So, and for me, <laughs> yeah. you know, young me was outside my body photographing Steve Howe. But again, here's the problem. If you post 10 photos, right, and I'm looking at you as a photographer, and those 10 photos run the gamut in star ratings, where two of them are four stars, one of them maybe is a five star, most of them are a three star, and you even have a one or a two star in there. I'm looking at you thinking, if I hired you, which photographer am I going to Right. Yeah, is exactly. one star Steve going to show up or is five star Steve going to show up? Because clearly <laughs> you're both people. Don't do that. And the way I always word it to people is only show the work that represents the way you want to be seen. Only show people your work that shows yourself to them the way you want them to see you. You want to be seen as a great photographer? only show the great work. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's very much, um, you know, in many ways, it's it's an opportunity for you to really, in a sense, sort of manipulate your audience, you know, um, because yeah. it allows, because That's it allows true. you to, yeah, it is, yeah, because it allows you to, yeah. you know, to, to make your audience see you the way you want to be seen. Um, and I'll give you an example, like from my own history. Um, before, before I had a life-changing event uh, many years ago, I was basically known as as a musician. You know, that's what I used to do. I, I mean, everybody who I've known ever since childhood knows me as as a guitar player. That's what I did day in, day out. Um, when I was a kid, not many people knew that I did a lot of photography or I did a lot of video, actually, because I had a video camera with me wherever I went back in the day. Um, but everybody knew me as, you know, Kay, the guitar player. And... Um, and obviously I went on to study guitar and all the rest of it and then, you know, had a, a career um, as a session musician and so on. Um, so, you know, whatever I would post on Facebook, like whenever that started in 2008 or something, you know, it was all about guitar playing. Like, you know, up until probably 2012 or something like that, 2011, it was, yeah, 20, 2011, 2012, it was all about, um, it was all about guitar playing. And then... You know, my obviously my life took a different direction, and 
Um, and then literally from then on, it was all, it was all about photography, you know, and uh, it's, it's interesting going back to like 2011, because uh, some of those images were shocking by modern standard, but you know, really admit it. But, um, but of course that sort of raised a lot of questions initially. I remember like friends going like, Hey, are you still playing? Like, do you still play? And I still get that sometimes. Like, do you, do you still play guitar? I don't see anything. You know, you don't never post any guitar playing. So it's because I, I don't actually, I still play a little bit, but I don't, I don't play. Um, in that sense, I don't play anymore. You know, I certainly don't play professionally. Um, and so, you know, and it's, uh, and then there are a lot of people who have gotten to know me over the last 10, 12 years who will only know me as a photographer. And they'd be surprised to learn that I even play guitar, <laughs> you know, because they just don't, they just don't know. But it's, it's literally like just a, you know, a form of, you know, conscious or, or, or subconscious or unconscious manipulation of the audience through the window of, of social media and, and what it is that you, that you show and how you present yourself to the outside world, you know, and that's, that's always the thing. Um, another, another quick example, like I can give, uh, which isn't necessarily social media related, but, but kind of similar is, um, I, many years ago, I got a job where I was required to wear a suit and tie. Okay. Like a sort of a senior management position. And, uh, I felt super uncomfortable with this because I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm not exactly the suit and guy type of guy. Um, in fact, up to that point, this was like in my mid, late, mid to late thirties, I didn't even know how to tie a tie. I had to literally watch YouTube videos to teach me how to tie a tie. And, and so I would go into work every day with the biggest sense of imposter syndrome you can possibly imagine. Because, you know, because I had to like present this, this image of myself that I knew I wasn't, I, that I wasn't, you know, cause the minute I get home, it'd be like, oh, you know, get the suit of get my jeans on, let's go, <laughs> you know, type of thing. But it's, it's really just a matter of like how, how you present yourself. So yeah, that's, you know, just another example for exactly that. And it's funny cause this completely showing yourself in the best light leads into what I had as my final one, which is when you show yourself at the quality level that it should be and not this mixed bag of quality, when you show yourself at the quality level over the quantity level, then you might start getting inquiries to pay you. And one of my big things is charge for your work. I don't care if it's $5. I don't care if it's $10. I see people say, oh, well, you know, they're only going to use it on social media. And there are, there are small, like in my world, right? They're a small band. They're broke. They're a small local band. They're broke. You know what? That band, if they needed a new microphone, would go buy a Shure SM58 for 120 bucks. That drummer, if he needs drum heads, is going to buy new drum heads. The guitarist is going to buy picks on a regular basis and is probably also going to buy strings on a regular basis. And oh my gosh, they just came out with a new pedal and he wants that pedal and he's going to go buy that pedal, right? People spend money on things that further their career, right? That's an investment. That's not an expense. And as soon as your photo... so. Here's one of the misconceptions to me in photography. We think we're getting paid for our work. 
And I mean, okay, technically we are. I go do a photo shoot. I charge you for the photo shoot. You want to use the picture? I license you the picture, right? But in reality, it does them no good to pay us for that photo shoot for the sake of the photo shoot, right? Nobody is going to go pay us to do a photo shoot and not get a picture out of it, right? What they're paying for is that our photos are doing work for them. And as soon as your photo is doing work, you deserve to be paid. I've seen people in the music industry say, you know, I'm really young and I'm really new and I realize I'm not good enough yet. So I'm working free for some local bands and giving them some stuff. Look, I've been paid sometimes more by the local bands whose parents will come to me and say, hey, I've got I got 500 bucks where you do a portrait shoot for me. And it's one, you know, 16 year old blues guitar player. Okay. But they know that my photo is going to work for them. They're going to use it on his album cover on Spotify, or they're going to use it for Instagram ads or something like that. As soon as, as soon as your photo, as soon as somebody says to you, Hey, can I get a, can I get a copy of that for my Instagram? Your photo has value. Yeah. Right then. Don't say I'm too new at this. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not good enough. I'm going to give it to them. I'm going to build a port. As soon as someone says to you, can I use your photo? Your photo has value. So even if you say to them, oh, it's just for Instagram. Yeah. Give me 25 bucks. I mean, I'd rather you charge more, but give me 25 bucks. That will train you because one of the hardest things is most people in business don't know business. And it does you no good to be a plumber that can go fix everybody's plumbing, but you really don't know how to run a business and you're out of business in a year because you didn't know how to do business, right? Yeah. Same thing here. This is business. It's a business arrangement. As soon as somebody wants your photo, train yourself, teach yourself to ask for money so that it doesn't feel so alien and uncomfortable. And if that means you say to them, you know what, take me to lunch at Taco Bell. God forbid you're eating at Taco Bell, but that's a totally different story. <laughs> take, take me to lunch, take me to lunch somewhere, buy me a coffee, whatever it is. Get used to exchange. Get used to asking for something in return. And that will take you to the next level in your photography career, not just your art. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's not to say that you shouldn't do things for free, but I always I always right. explain it this way. If, if I decide I want to do something for free, for whatever reason, then I, I need it to be my decision, you know, rather than somebody else's decision. Yep. So as soon as somebody says, like, can, can you do this photo shoot for me for free? I'm not in the driving seat there. It's somebody else who's already made that decision that they want me to shoot for them for free. It's different when I say, okay, I've got this idea. I want to do this for somebody for whatever reason, maybe because I want to give something back or because I have an idea that I want to do. And, you know, um, that's a different thing. I'm in the driving seat and I can make the decision. But the minute, um, I was, yeah, I mean, I think of it exactly, exactly in the same way that, that you described. As soon as I realized that the, the image that I create, works for somebody else, then, you know, quite rightfully, I 
as the creator of that work, deserve to be compensated for that to some degree. And it could be that could be monetary compensation, of course, ideally, um, or it could be compensation in some other in some other form. Um, I recently, actually, not too long ago, maybe about six months ago or something, I I needed to, um, I was looking for a tiling company to have my kitchen retiled. Okay, and it's quite a quite a large job. It's quite expensive. Uh, we were taking in quotes, and uh, we came across a company literally, literally two houses down from where I live. Um, and you know the the guy comes in to look at the look at the kitchen, look at the project, and price it up and everything. And you know we're talking about what what we wanted and you know how much it's going to be. And then he he, he looks at me, he goes like, hey, you you're the photographer, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes like, "Oh." Um, you know, aside from the tiny company, I run a restaurant and I was thinking of having the menu shop. How much, you know, how much would you charge for that? And it's like, okay, well, we're discussing. And in the end, we came to the conclusion that actually what we were, what, what we were talking about was pretty much equivalent value, you know? So, um, so having my complete, my kitchen completely retiled would have been approximately the same amount of money that I would typically charge for, for a shoot of that nature. And so we, we just, immediately decided to just do a bottle arrangement and basically go like, yeah. okay, well, how about I tile you, we tile your kitchen, you shoot the menu for us. Hey, I'm all in. There was a form of compensation there. It wasn't monetary, but actually, you know, I got, I got a brand new kitchen retiled, not for free because I obviously worked for that, but the compensation there wasn't, wasn't monetary. Um, you know, and actually it also, what it meant was I managed to build up a really good relationship with that particular company. They need some other help in some other um, sectors like the social media, whatever. And so it actually, you know, leads to some follow-up work further down the line, which is which is ideal. So you know, sometimes monetary compensation isn't the only compensation that you can that you can get, but um, it, definitely I highly encourage people to to literally work for free. I mean, these two things don't go together. Work and free doesn't really go together for me um, at all. And again. You know, I just reiterate: there are situations where you might decide that you want to do some free work, maybe for a charitable purpose. You know, whatever, maybe, maybe for a friend. Maybe you might, you might think. I had that not too long ago, actually, last year. Only you know, a friend of mine set up a new business um, as a real estate agent. Uh, the business wasn't going very well. They had a really bad experience with some headshots, and um, and I knew, I knew my friend didn't have the didn't have the means to to pay my usual rate, you know, and I basically thought, you know what, and he didn't ask me anything, but I just basically, you know, I thought like, look, I can help you out with this. Let's get your, let's get your image polished up. Um, you know, buy me a few drinks and you know, we call it, we call it quits. I want to do that for you because I want to help you out too, my friend. That's a whole different, that's a different scenario. Um, but yeah, it's the, the idea of not being good enough I mean, by which not being good enough, by which standard that that never changes depending on who you compare yourself to. You're never good enough. Like, when are you good enough? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm never going to be a David Bergman, and I recognize that. And so it's funny you mentioned the barter system because I've been in radio for years and I owned a DJ business for years. Eighteen years, I DJed weddings and weddings and everything. And when we had our pool done originally, the concrete guy that did our deck. Uh, it ended out his son was getting married who worked with him and I needed a driveway and I bartered a driveway for DJing 
his wedding. There's a lot of ways that you can get paid, but here's the thing. A lot of people, you know, it's the old, hey, we'll give you exposure, right? <laughs> and we've all seen the, we've all seen the yeah. memes that exposure doesn't pay your mortgage, but here's the deal. Yeah. The people who say to you or allude to you without saying it that, look, if you do this work for free, let's, let's work something out. Might be able to get you some work down the road. I'm not saying that never happens, but probably 90% of the time, the if I do this for free for them now, it will lead to work down the road. Never happens, right? 90% really of the time, never that never proves to be true. Look, there are people out there that, yeah, they try you and then they come to you and they hire you. But once you've trained them that you don't charge for your work, they don't want to pay for your work. Yeah. So get in the habit of just, it's it's the, one of the greatest business things you'll ever try. Teach yourself to be okay with asking for money. Photographers have serious trouble with that, but just ask, right? Well, and and I think all don't, do, don't do this one, which is I had a friend who owned a computer shop. I may, I may have told this story on the show before. I don't know. Owned a computer shop. Guy in there talking about a computer. I want, you know, yeah, you know what? How much is it? Oh, it's 525 bucks. Uh, you know what? I'll take it. And the owner of the store goes, I'll do it for 450 and the guy literally just said, I'll take it for $525. i will do it for $450. <laughs> the hell, man. Right? Know when to take money. You'll be better off for it. You'll eat better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. It's um I think all creative people, um let's say most creative people do have that that issue with you know, with getting into that business mindset because it's often said that creative people aren't good at business and it's, it's because I think as a creative person you know again I draw parallels to music you know you spend a lot of your time thinking about the creative aspects of your craft you know the um, the music sides you know photography uh, making videos you spend a lot of time like maybe studying other photographers um, you know learning getting better at Photoshop Lightroom you know at shooting and all that kind of stuff, you know, you learn how gear works and how how you light things, and you want to you want to do all that creative stuff. And of course, what you don't really want to do is do all the boring business stuff, like the writing invoices and chasing money and dealing with the tax office and all that kind of stuff that you need to the, the marketing and the promotion thing, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's the boring backroom, boring dry stuff that. That as a creative person, you, you don't really want to do. That's why you do creative things because you don't want to do the looking at spreadsheets bit, you know, and um, and and that's the downfall of many a creative person. It's because you know they're not they're not capable of of running a business. Um, if I'd wanted to learn how to, I mean, as a musician, I was back then. I thought like that. You know, if I wanted to learn how to run a business, I would have gone to business school rather than to music college. You know, but. I had to learn that personally. I had to learn that the hard way because I found myself, by sheer coincidence almost, I found myself in a position where all of a sudden I set up a music school and although I, did, I really didn't have any great aspirations for it in the very beginning, it was just a small thing, within a year it exploded to 350 students and 16 employees. And... And all of a sudden, I was in—I was in a situation. I was just thrown into the situation where I was basically 
becoming the victim of my own success because I had to learn how to run a business. All of a sudden I was running a business and actually before I knew it, I wasn't playing guitar all day anymore. I was running a business. I was dealing with the banks. I was securing loans. I was talking to solicitors. I was talking to accountants. I was talking to the tax office. I was negotiating with landlords. Um, I, I was maintaining the building. I was looking after people's wages, hiring office assistants, uh, you know, uh, uh, looking at computer systems, software, accounting software, blah, 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 blah all that kind of stuff. It's like, I never, I never signed up for this. I want to play my guitar. <laughs> That's what I want to do. But of course, you know, if I didn't do all that boring stuff, um, well, you know, I wouldn't be running a, a business for very long. I think most creatives go into what they do for a living because that's their hobby. We love photography. We want to do photography. I love being in a photo pit at concerts. I want to do that. Then I get a job. Then, you know, then it leads to more work like you were talking about. And I think we all have that little voice in our head that is, oh God, I hope this doesn't, I don't want it to become a job. I want it to stay a passion hobby. And there's a point where, where that switch turns, right? Where the hobby becomes work. And, you know, one thing I would say is the the back office stuff that you have to do to run a business should be still a happy moment for you because it's what sets you up to be able to go do that hobby and get paid to do what you love, right? So when it gets to the point where you stop having fun because of that back office stuff, find something else to do. Yes, because so if you can't understand that it's that's what's giving you the freedom to do your hobby for a living, then maybe maybe you're burned out. Well, so it's you know the important thing to remember is is that when you turn your hobby into your job, you are left without a hobby. But, yeah, know, and yeah. that happened to me in music. Um, and you know, I've, my my mindset has always been. If I'm really into something, then that's what I want to do. You know, so for me, it's when, you know, when it was like 15 or 16, you know, I was playing the guitar. That's what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to do that as a, as a living, you know, I wanted to be a musician and make a living that way. No, I didn't, you know, I've never really, I never thought like, oh, I want to be famous. Not at all. I wanted to play the guitar all day. That's what I wanted to do and get paid for doing it, you know, to do that was the thing for me. And um, and the same thing in a sense, the same thing with photography. You know, I never really thought, oh, you know, um, I love photography, but I don't want to do it as a job. I thought like, oh, well, actually, no, I love doing this. I want to do this as a job. Um, had I not run the music school beforehand, for me personally, and and sort of gathered some experience in running a business, uh, it would have been a lot more difficult for me to do it this way around. So because a lot of the aspects of running a business apply regardless as to what it actually is that you do, um, you know, right. all the ingredients required to uh, to make this work and stuff like that, you know. Um, and so, oh. you know, that's helped me immensely, but I didn't go to business school to learn that. And, you know, I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination, um, I know all the secrets of, of running a successful business. Absolutely not. Um, you know, I, I'm, I definitely know Gary Vaynerchuk or Elon Musk or anything by any stretch of the imagination. You know? Well, you don't want to be but, Elon, but that's a different story too. Well, that's a different story. Yeah, exactly. But 
you know, yeah. I mean, for me, um, I've learned a lot uh, just by by being thrown into this situation. And I've made lots of mistakes. Uh, luckily, I made most of those mis- mistakes when I was running the music school. So, you know, but nevertheless, you never stop learning, which sort of, in a in a very weird way, brings us back to the very beginning of where we started, yeah. where we said it's really important to keep learning, you know, keep experiencing new things, you know, broaden your mind and, um, you know, and, and, and gain more knowledge. Um, whether that's, whether that's technical photography stuff, you know, whether that's the, whether that's theory, whether it's business related stuff, it can only have a positive impact on your life. Um, that's, I think that's a perfect, perfect circling back to the beginning. Um, Steve, it's been amazing to have you on the show. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll see you on the show many more times. Um, I'm, I'm so glad he agreed to come on again. It's been a super fun conversation. It's always good to see you, my friend. Uh, we have known each other a while now. We hung out in London with you and Dave, and and I will do the show anytime that you want, assuming that anybody wants to see me on the show again. But uh, thank you so much for having me. I really, really Okay, folks, that's all for today. It's always awesome to have Steve on the show. But before we go, let me just recommend another episode that I think you like. Check out episode 169 with Bure Perry, where we talk about how you can take better photos. I'm sure you love it. If you enjoy our content, consider supporting us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash camera shake to help us continue creating and bringing you more exciting episodes. It really does mean the world to us. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, did you know that there's a fully fleshed video version over on YouTube with plenty of examples of our guest photography in full Technicolor? All you have to do is go over to YouTube, search for Camera Shake Podcast, and you'll be able to watch all past episodes on there. And if you are on YouTube already, well, get in touch and leave a comment. And remember to hit the like button, ring that bell, and share with your friends. You can help us reach a greater audience all over the world. Once again, thank you for listening and watching, and I'll see you next Thursday.